All right, we are in Exodus, uh, starting in chapter 14. We'll back up a little bit, and we'll pick it up uh, at uh, chapter, uh, verse 17, previous chapter, and uh, kind of pick it up again. We talked a little bit about this at the end of last week. But we are going through Exodus, one verse of Scripture at a time, as is our custom on our Wednesday night Bible study. So glad that you have joined with us. Um, There will be... In just a little bit here, we'll be jumping over whole sections of this because it gets really, 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 really detailed. And um, boy, if you're having a hard time sleeping, man, just read this stuff tonight and it'll knock you right out. But uh, we will go through a lot of this through uh, the books of Moses here and just kind of hit the main points that I think that are applicable for us. Um, We're going to skip over reading all the details of the law of Moses uh, some of it which is easy to understand, some of it which seems absolutely bizarre and strange. I'm sure there are brilliant people out there who can explain it all. I ain't one of them. But, uh, but it's like, you know, unless we all plan to be Jewish, it doesn't matter because we don't have to obey all those laws anymore. But uh, let's pick it up at uh, verse 17, chapter 13. Um, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. We talked about this last week, how God actually could have taken them a shorter route to make things easier on them. But he intentionally didn't do that. They said, For God said if they face war, in other words, the things might get hard for them, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God intentionally led them around by the desert toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Uh, talks about Moses taking the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made him all swear, make sure you take me with you when you leave Egypt, 430 years previous to that. Um, and anyway, so, so he goes, and uh, so he's leading them intentionally, basically into a trap. And we talked about last time, sometimes it seems like God is leading you in a direction when things get worse, things get harder, things get more troublesome. Don't lose heart, don't lose faith. God has not abandoned you. He's not done with you. And besides, you don't know the whole details. He does. He sees things from a much higher perspective. And he's able to see the, you know, mazes. Have you ever gone with one of those human mazes that you got to go through and like out in the corn stalks or something? And try, anybody ever do that? It's like really, really hard. Now, if you had a big ladder and looked down, it's a lot easier. Because you can see everything, right? You can say, well, that's not going that way. You know what I'm saying? But when you're, God is the one looking at the maze. You, all you see are stocks everywhere and it's hard to figure out where you're at half the time and don't get frustrated. Sometimes God intentionally leads people down paths that make it harder for them. And that's exactly what he did to the, uh, to the Israelites as they come up out of Egypt. You know, here they're celebrating, man, we're coming out of Egypt, things are fabulous, this is great. And uh, so God starts taking them and heads them toward the Red Sea. So we're picking up uh, verse 1 of chapter 14. And the Lord said, said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near... By Haroth between Migdal and the sea, and there to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. In other words, he intentionally sent him out there to bait Pharaoh. Now, you would think Pharaoh would be done with these people, right? I mean, these people have been nothing but grief and horror for them throughout all these plagues that have been hammering them one after another after another but God kept confusing the guy's head just so that God could make an example of him but he says okay I want you to go out here and we're going to set you in a bad place and uh, Pharaoh's going to think what a bunch of dorks they're hemmed in and uh, and he's going to come after you 
I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he says, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So he's intentionally leading them into a place, making them look like they're in a trap. And anyway, it says in the next verse, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? What do you mean, what have you done? You morons! These people were bringing plague after plague on you. I can't believe that these guys were going, what did we do? Why did we let them go? And of course, they're seeing them out there wandering out there and they think they're easy prey. And it says here, you know, we've let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. These were the slaves. These are the guys that were, we were making them do all the work. Now they're out of here. We must have been out of our minds. No, they're out of their minds because they haven't gotten past this yet. So so Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. And he took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Well, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near this place what I just read before and probably pronounced all wrong, and I won't say it again. And, and as Pharaoh approached them, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. Here they come. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And the Bible says they were terrified horrified, crying out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, give us a break, let us serve the Egyptians, everything's fine, don't make things worse, don't stir up the... What what were you thinking? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now you've got these people keep saying this chorus over and over and over again as we read their story of how God leads them out into the desert. And, uh, and it takes them 40 years to get what it should have taken them. I forget what it is, a couple of weeks of that to, to get to wherever they were supposed to go. Why were they wandering around in the desert for 40 years? Because they just ticked God off. He had it up to hear these people. He got so mad at him because they were every time they encountered a difficulty or trouble, they went, "Oh, we're all gonna die. We're all gonna die. I just knew we we're gonna die. Friends, we're not dead yet. It's just horrible. I knew it was horrible. I knew it was gonna be horrible. I warned them. I warned them. Nobody listened to me. This was their constant chant." This is the first time we see it. I mean, they just left. You would think, hey, this is cool. We're all together. But as soon, the first challenge they have, they see the Egyptians coming. I forgot it did all these incredible miracles for them. And by the way, they're following this gigantic pillar of cloud. Okay. I mean, it's pretty, you know, where was even the faith here? You don't even got to have faith. They're seeing stuff right there. They're seeing God being displayed in front of them physically with their own eyes. And as, as I've told you before, People often say, well, why doesn't God do more miracles and cool stuff like this today? Because this proves, and it was proved even in the life of Jesus, people do not believe with this. They can see it and never believe it. The only way to true faith is to see with your heart. So here are these people, they're out there, God's right, there's a gigantic pillar of cloud, and then at night it would turn into this pillar of fire. And they're freaking out because the Egyptians are coming. I think, you know, I'm just going to hang up by the cloud. You know what I'm saying? But these people got no faith. They got nothing. 
And they come to Moses and say, well, we're going to die. I knew he was going to die. I told you he was going to die. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Quit freaking out. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You will only need to be still. And then apparently, Moses turns around to God and goes, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So, so he has this great front that he gives to all the people. And, uh, and then he starts crying to God. Uh, it doesn't say that, but we can see in the very next verse where the Lord says, why are you crying to me? Quit freaking out. Tells the Israelites to move on. Everybody say, move on. Move on. Keep moving. There's a great phrase. When you're going through hell, don't stop. Are you hearing me? Pastor, I'm giving up. I'm going through hell. That's the wrong way to stop. You're going through hell. Don't stop. You stay in hell. Keep moving. Move on. Raise your staff, he tells Moses. Stretch your hand out over the sea and divide the water so that the Israelites can go over through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they'll go in after them. I mean, he's telling Moses everything's going to happen. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So, then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of the Israel's army. What angel of God? This big fire, this big cloud thing of a jigwap that they're following. So it's been leading them the whole time. So now they come up to the, to the sea. And the big pillar, which he's calling an angel now, goes to, to the back now. Why? To separate between the Israelites and the charging Egyptians. Okay? So, the angel of the, <laughs> the, angel of, the of God, who had been traveling in front of our Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. So there's like this standoff. They're sitting there. Now, when you watch the movie, it was not quite like this, okay? It happens like really quick, right? And we see that Moses comes up and goes, Behold his mighty hand! You know, Charleston Heston and run right away. And they go across. It's not exactly the time frame. And, and we've, we've talked about this before. How oftentimes you read the Bible. And we forget that sometimes there's, there's huge time frames that go by. In fact, if you read directly from uh, the end of Genesis where we're at. And then right into the beginning of Exodus. You would assume Joseph just died. And it's just a few years later when you know, Moses comes along. No, it's 430 years. You, know, you find that out a little bit later. But a lot of times we miss the time frames in here. So anyway, so, so all night long there's a standoff. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. So it didn't go. Just, and they walked across. It's all night long. This wind comes down. It must have been one Yomama wind. But it's blowing. And everything gets pushed back. And the wind's blowing so strong it totally dries out. The, the, the bed of, you know, the seabed, which should be really muddy, right? Well, it's not. It's all totally dry. So this is going on all night long. So all night long. On the one hand, here's now the great big pillar of fire. On the other side are all the Egyptians freaking out. And they're all freaking out. And, and all night long you're hearing this, this shift blowing and water splashing and everything blowing. I mean, this had to be one really long night. Are you hearing me? 
you know, sometimes we just freak out because we go through difficult times and it seems like things are taking forever. Night, I don't know if you've ever uh, had to stand guard or something like that or watch something like all night long. We literally had to stand up all night long. I've, I've only done it a few times in my life for whatever reason. And, uh, and I don't do it very well, quite frankly. I literally fall asleep standing up. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, there are times in the middle of the night where it seems like time just takes forever. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and that's the second hand, right? And it's like, oh my goodness, it's taking forever. Well, can you imagine the tension that is here and how long that night had to feel like? So all night long, the wind's blowing, the fire's here, and, and the light of the fire is staying on the Israelite side so they can kind of see, but on the on the Egyptian side, they can't see anything, uh, just creating more uh, confusion to them. So uh, also all night long, this happened, and it turns into dry land, and the waters were divided. And the Israelites then went through the sea on dry ground, and a wall of water, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now just walking through there had to be pretty freaky, okay? <laughs> they got no guarantee that water ain't coming back on top of them, you know what I'm saying? But what made them get to a place of faith? Well, they crossed the Red Sea. A bunch of Egyptians trying to kill them. Right? I mean, sometimes God uses things to highly motivate you. Right? I, I often tell this little analogy. The way God often leads me in my life is he shuts every window and door in the house, opens one door, and lights the house on fire. Then I feel motivated to move and follow God in a certain direction. Okay, that's because I'm not the brightest guy in the world, and that's kind of how God deals with me. Well, these guys finally were motivated to go through there, even though that had to be terrifying. But what's the alternative? The Egyptians are right there. They're going to kill us all. So they crossed over on dry land. Well, then the Egyptians pursued them. So these guys crossed over, and then all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. In the morning watch, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire in the cloud of the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots swerve so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting uh, for them against Egypt. Um, one tr- tr- translation says uh, that he was knocking the wheels off the chariots. Um, another one uh, says that their, their wheels were jammed. Anyway, just everything starts going wrong. So, so they come into the sea, chasing the Egyptians. Now, all of a sudden, they're bogging down. Everything's going wrong. They're freaking out. They're saying, let's get out of here. Then the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back into its place and wipes them all out. Uh, the Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. (laughs) These poor Egyptians, man. They had a bad, bad time of it. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses... His servants. So at this point, they're thinking, fabulous. This is truly God, and this is truly a mountain of God. Now, you will see this doesn't last very long. But anyway, so we hit chapter 15, and this is a song. 
that they all sing. And we're not going to read it because I don't feel like reading it. You can read it whenever you want to read it. But they're singing this song and they're dancing and Miriam has the tambourine out and Aaron's, you know, and everybody's just boogieing and singing, praise God, praise God, he brought us through all this stuff, okay? So we'll pick it up at uh, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because the water was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, oddly enough, and he threw it into the water, and then the water was fine, and it became sweet. And there the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. And he said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Uh, and then they uh, came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped near the water. Sounds like a pretty nice place. Okay, so now, this is the first that we start seeing really clearly as God is speaking to the entire nation. Uh, we would see God make promises directly to Abraham and directly to Isaac or to Jacob or to Noah or whoever, you know, one person at a time. Now God is starting to speak to an entire nation. That's kind of the new flavor here that's happening in terms of God dealing with people. And this is where you start seeing God promising stuff. Look, if you do this, I'll give you this. If you do this, I'll give you that. If you do this, if you don't, I'm going to kick your butt, okay? I mean, he, he, he warns them and stuff. So we see this interaction between being obedient to God and having rewards. And God used rewards or the threat of punishment as motivation to these men to do the right thing. I say that because... There is this thinking oftentimes that I run into in Christian circles that thinks that that is totally inappropriate. You should never offer a reward in terms for good behavior. Because I talk to couples, you know, in marriage seminars, you know. So you want to get along, be nice to each other for crying out. Don't be so puking mean, number one. And number two, you know, you want to motivate each other, give each other rewards, kind of give incentivized. And men are cool with it, but women are opposed. That's terrible. That's terrible. He shouldn't need any rewards. He ought to just do it. Yeah, it's not spiritual. God would never... Yes, God did. And did it all the time. Why? Because God knows men. (laughs) They need some rewards. They need some incentives to do stuff, okay? Quit having a cow because men just don't want to do things just because they should. Or just not that way. All right? And by the way, God condemns a lot of things about men, but never their need for reward or incentive to do that. And we see this throughout the whole Bible, even in the Old... Even throughout the New Testament... At the end of the New Testament, read the book of Revelations. How many times Jesus says, if you'll do this, I'll give you that. If you do this, I'll give you that. To him that endures, I will reward him on over and over and over again. This is a thing that we start seeing here, and it goes through the rest of the Bible. Don't tell me it's unscriptural to give people incentive to do the right thing. I mean, there's some real purists that just, it just this idea just drives them crazy. There's, every once in a while, we'll have people who come to our church, and they'll get mad because, you know, you, you offered our children... Uh, you know, a reward if they'd memorize the Bible verse. And we just think that's wrong. And I just go, you know, go away. You know, you're going to be that anal about stuff for crying out loud. They just think there should be no reward for doing the right things. Well, obviously you haven't read the Bible. (laughs) Heaven and hell, pretty big reward system, wouldn't you say? Anyway. 
I don't know why I went off on that. Just stuff makes me crazy. Okay, so now we're chapter 16. Now, so here they show up at Elam. Seems like a nice place. Twelve springs, palm trees, you know, they're camped out near the water. And the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they come out of Egypt. So it hasn't been too terribly long. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we would have died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. (laughs) If only we were dead. Man, I mean, these people got some serious issues. If only we were dead. This is your way of cheering yourself up. How you doing? I don't know. I wish I was dead. I mean, I woke up. I still alive this morning. What the heck's the deal with this? Man, these people were something else. If only we would have died in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. At least in Egypt we had meat. Pots of it, apparently. We ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve us all to death. Oh, if only we were dead. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. On this, in this way, I will test them and see whether or not they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Why? Because they weren't supposed to gather anything on a Saturday, which was the Sabbath. So on Friday, they were able to gather twice as much as normal, and it would carry them through the Sabbath. So when Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Against who? Him. He says, who are we that you should grumble against us? Well, you're not grumbling against us, you nitwits. You're grumbling against God. Of course, they didn't really grumble against God so much as they were yelling at Moses. And this (laughs) this is something anyone who's been in leadership in almost any area of life knows the feeling, particularly those oftentimes in ministry. Or in churches where people get just grumbling against the pastor and stuff. And there's a principle here. You've got to be careful with that kind of stuff. Because at some point, God says, hey, you're not grumbling against them. You're grumbling against me. Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you a meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumblings against him. Who are we? We're nothing. You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. All right, then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Not their prayers, not their intercessions, not their supplications and entreaties before God. They're complaining, they're grumbling, they're moaning, and they're whining. While Aaron was was speaking to the whole Israelite assembly, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. By the way, isn't it interesting? Because we just uh, studied this um, uh, on Sunday, that Jesus did all these incredible miracles and stuff like that. But when was it that they wanted to make him the Messiah? Do you remember? When he gave him food. When they're food, their stomachs. So here... They're ready to rebel against God because they're hungry. 
I got nothing to eat. They're ready to make Jesus Messiah. Forget about the miracles. Man, he made us sandwiches. Let's make him Messiah. I mean, we got some serious issues here with appetite. Well, that evening, quail came and covered the camp. Now, you got to get the picture of this. They're hungry for food. They're hungry for meat. And all of a sudden, all these birds just start flying through the camp. And he literally just reach out and grab a bird. So everybody's got all these birds. So they have, you know, bird, quails. So they're, they're covered with all these quails. And they're eating these things. And then in the morning, there was this layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer. Hello, omer. It's about two liters, by the way. For each person you have in your tent. Well, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered too much did not have too much, and he who gathered too little did not have too little, because they used that to measure it all out, balance it out. And each one uh, gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, Now no one's supposed to keep any of it till morning. All right? Now you would think, listening to Moses, pretty much everything he says happens, right? I mean, he's been calling these plagues down. He's turning sticks into snakes. I mean, he's unbelievable. This guy, he spreads his arm out, the water, we cross, he closes it on top of the Egyptians. So he tells them, don't keep any of this. I mean, he just did this incredible miracle. Here come the flying sandwiches, and then, and then, and then we get bread in the morning. This is they don't got to do anything. Just get up and eat. But don't keep them any until morning. Would they listen to him? No. Some of them paid no attention to Moses. Again, this is just the beginning of why God finally had it up the year. He's about here right now. It's going to rise. And he's just finally going to have it with these people. And he makes them wander around the desert for 40 years waiting for all of these people to die. Man, I'm just going to wait for you all to die. I'll take your kids in. Which are whiners and complainers and grumblers and belly aching constantly. Wouldn't trust God about anything. Always whining and belly aching. And he waited until they all died and then he took their kids into the promised land. Ugh, pretty wild. Anyway, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until the next morning. Why? Oh, I, gotta, I gotta have some. Oh, what if I don't have enough? It's like a lot of us just freaking out, worrying about everything. What about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? What am I gonna do tomorrow? What am I gonna do the next day? Jesus said, for crying out loud, just you don't have enough problems today? You don't have enough problems? How many of you have enough problems today? Man, I got enough issues today. I don't need to be worried about tomorrow. These guys, they just wouldn't trust. They wouldn't trust. So they kept on till the morning. But look what happened. When they got up to get their oatmeal, it was full of maggots and began to smell. Woo! Somebody's got to throw it out, man. This beautiful stuff turns maggoty and starts reeking. And uh, so Moses was angry with them. No kidding. Now each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed. When the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow will be the day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and then save whatever is left and keep it till morning. So now he says on this day, now you can save it because you need to carry it into the next day. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded. And it didn't stink or get maggots in it. Praise the Lord. 
Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath uh, to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there won't be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the Sabbath day. These people are idiots. Uh, they went out anyway. Right, well, let's go get some more. There's got to be some more. But they didn't find any. And the Lord says to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one's to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Well, the people of Israel called the bread manna. All right? That's where we get the word manna. It was like white coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. So it was pretty good stuff. I just they woke up in the morning and there it was. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. So they took all this and he wanted to seal up some of it and God allowed him to do this as a commandment to the Lord so that in the generations that come, they could come and actually look and see the stuff that they got in the desert. Uh, my guess is this was put in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Of course, all that eventually was all lost. But uh, if it hadn't been, apparently we could still look at it today. It'd be kind of cool, huh? Anyways, the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron, put the man in front of the testimony that uh, it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. The minute they went into the promised land, the manna quit coming pretty wild huh as long as they were out there god provided this for them and we'll talk when we get to there you know one of the reasons for that okay and then he parenthetically states that an omer is one tenth of an eva (laughs) thank you for making that clear (laughs) i did not know that i did not know that I, i i'm so ashamed well, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, Sin, however you pronounce that, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink! Well, I wish we were dead, I wish we were dead, we should be dead, we're not dead. Good grief. Moses said, Why are you quarreling with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Why are you testing God? God is constantly taking you, taking care of you. And the minute you are inconvenienced, the minute you go a little bit longer than you should without something to eat, the minute you go a little bit longer than you should without something to drink, you guys turn into whiners and belly acres. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? We were so happy back in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They lived in hell in Egypt. These people, I'm telling you, that, that meter's just starting to go up. You know, they just were constantly, there's something wrong with these people. Seriously. I mean, and, and the Bible, the New Testament warns us when we read in Hebrews, don't be like these guys. Don't be like, God has done miracles in your life. Some of you, he has brought you out of Egypt, Egypt of sin, Egypt of d- destruction, e- Egypt of pain and heartache. And brought you to a place of faith and blessing your life. And don't get into this habit that these people were. I say, well, I wish I was back there. Don't be constantly griping and whining against God every time your life gets hard. Or at least it looks like he's leading in a direction that's making things worse. That's what the Bible says. Man, there's, if there's one example, the Bible says, to learn from these people. Do not be like this. 
Do not be like this. And, uh, and I, I tell you, I got a real short fuse for this stuff, as many of you well know. If, <laughs> if I hear whining or belly aching or something, I hammer stuff from the pulpit. And there's people who get really mad at me about that. Most of them aren't here anymore. But, uh, which is fine, go away. You know, we're just not going to tolerate that kind of nonsense. I can't stand that stuff. Now, if you've got legitimate concerns, bring it on. But don't be sitting around, well, what about this? How come this? Good Lord. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children, our wonderful children, and our chickens, and our cows and our pigs die of thirst? Look at that poor pig. <laughs> no, it couldn't have been pigs. They were Jewish. That's, that's the Green Bay version. We had the pigs. chickens my pretty cows they're so thirsty then moses cried out to the lord what am i to do with these people now by, by the way now they're just giving me a little piece of what they're doing look he says they're almost ready to stone me these people were not just whining they wanted to kill him <laughs> moses is, what am i going to do with these people So the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Pretty cool miracle. And to keep this in mind, by the way, um, this happens another time later where God tells him to go out and talk to the rock. But Moses was so mad, he hit the rock twice because he'd hit the rock before. Okay, but just because of that one transgression, God did not let him go into the promised land. When we get there, we'll talk to you about why that was. But uh, anyway, so it wasn't like there wasn't precedent for hitting rocks. Okay, because he did it here. He hits the rock and all of a sudden water comes gushing out of this thing, which is, wow, pretty cool. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah. And Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because the Lord, because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Oh, listen to that. Is God really here? Is really God? Where's God? God doesn't care about me. I wanted a Timo survivor that didn't take. Where's, where's God? Good Lord, we whine about the stupidest things. And this was a test. This was really hacking God off. Don't be sitting there running around and claiming, well, God's left me. It's horrible. I'm going to die. Don't be like this. Anyway, so they're out there. And uh, back in those days, you couldn't much go anywhere with somebody out trying to kill you. I mean, nations were constantly at war with each other. So the the Amalekites are out there. And uh, they see the Israelites. And uh, they don't, you know, I don't know if they heard anything about what had happened in in Egypt or not, but anyway, they decided to come and attack them because that's what everybody did. One band would run to another and they'd all go to war. So the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So he tells us to Joshua. Now Joshua turns out to be like the head general of the Israeli army here. And he's always leading them. 
and uh, it's eventually Joshua who takes the people into the promised land. And they come up against Jericho. You know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Anyway, this, this, this is all this. Joshua didn't die. Obviously him, everybody else keeled off. But Joshua, my guess, I don't know how old he was. We'll find out when we get there. I can't remember. But So he's obviously 40 years younger now than he, when he eventually takes over. But he's this young general here. And he leads the people. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and her, not Ben, but her, <laughs> Ben, her, anyway, uh, went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Well, they did the math on that pretty quick. <laughs> Do that again. We're winning. Yay, yay, yay. Ah! So when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him so he could sit on it. And then Aaron and her uh, <laughs> held up his hands, one on one side and on the other hand, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now, why did that happen? I do not know. I mean, it's just God always is doing things different. I mean, it's like we read about Jesus, you know, healing people. You know, he's laying hands on us, speaking to this one guy, he hocks a loogie on him. You know, why would you do that? Why are you spitting on people? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'll try not to do that to you. But, I'll, you know, just God just did that. For some reason, as long as his hands were up, they would win. And if it dropped, they'd... But there's a great analogy here that I think is really important for us to take. Because there's all kinds of analogies throughout this whole story. Besides, just don't be like these nitwits. But one is that this guy needed people to hold his hands up so that he could be strong. The the image here is that when the leader is being strong and inspiring the people, then everybody wins. When the leader loses energy and he can't do it anymore, then everybody starts to lose. And uh, the picture here is that oftentimes the leaders need people to help him or her to hold the arms up. Keep the energy up. Um, the analogy for us would be in my situation. I've only got so much energy and stuff. I need people's support. I need your prayers. I need, because I can't do this on my own. And I think anybody mature in the Lord knows that. And that's why you pray for me. And I encourage you and I thank you for your prayers. But don't help hold me up, man, so I can stay strong and stuff. Nobody can do this on their own. Uh, people often ask me, how in the world do you do what you do? Uh, because I have people holding up my arms. That's why. So aren't you exhausted? Not really. How is that possible? I don't know. I guess I have people holding up my arms. There are, and lots of you come to me and tell me, you, you pray for me every day. Every day. Uh, Sunday, somebody comes and says, Pastor, I want you to know, every morning, if you ever wonder if anybody prayed for you, you can take it to the bank. I prayed for you. I mean, it's very cool stuff, you know. And, and this helps to keep me strong to do what I could not possibly normally do. So it's not just in, in a guy's own strength, but the analogy here is that he needs the assistance of others so that he can do what God has called him to do and be a strong leader. So verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Interesting. Because I will completely erase the memory of the Am- Amalekites from under heaven. So the promise there is, you know, we're going to keep kicking Amalekite butt and there's not going to be anything left of them by the time we're done with them. Uh, so Moses built an altar and called it, uh, The Lord is my banner. And he said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. 
And the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. All right, now we get to the next thing. Uh, Jethro. I'm just singing the Beverly Hillbilly song in my head there. I just... Jed, move away from there. Anyway, uh, Jethro was Jed's son. Why am I saying this? I don't know what to... (laughs) Somebody hold up my hands. I'm going nuts. (laughs) Singing theme songs here. Jethro. Now, Jethro. Who in the world is Jethro? Jethro is the priest of Midian. That is the father-in-law of Moses. Remember, Moses runs out of Egypt. He winds up on the backside of the desert, meets this guy from Midian. He wasn't a Jewish guy. He wasn't a man of faith. He's a, he's a priest of probably some false god. Moses marries into this family. By the way, he gets criticized for this later. Wait till you see what God does to the people that criticized him. You know, there again, another analogy. Preachers aren't all perfect. The leader's not always perfect. No, the leader, he's supposed to do this and that. Look at him. He married that one woman. He wasn't supposed to, she's not even a Jewish woman. And uh, God got really hacked at, at, at that criticism. But that analogy is over and over again, you know, how they kept attacking the leader, even though the leader wasn't perfect. But anyway, so, so uh, Jethro comes to visit. This is his father-in-law. And he heard of everything that God had done for Moses and for his people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And after Moses had sent away his wife, Zephora, uh, uh, his father-in-law, Jethro, received her and her two sons. So he basically sent the two boys and, and, and Zipporah off to go visit uh, her dad. Uh, one of the sons' name was Gershom, for Moses had said, I've become an alien in a foreign land. The other's name was Eleazar, for he said, my father's God uh, was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to see him in the desert. So he basically sends them for a little vacation and then Jethro comes back with them to see Moses. Uh, And and he comes and meets them in the desert where they were camped near the mountain of God. We'll explain what that is as we go along. Uh, Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for for Israel's sake. And uh, about all the hardships that uh, he had, they had met, met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Well, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and, and of Pharaoh, who has rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, I know that, that the Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this uh, to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. So essentially... Uh, what happens here is Jethro becomes a convert. He, he becomes a believer. He sees what God has done through the life of his uh, son-in-law and, and his daughter and the family and this incredible thing and, and how God had done these great miracles. By the way, uh, you know, as, as, as people close to you see how God is blessing your life and changing things around and making you stronger, oftentimes that says way more to people than what you can say to them. You know, let your light shine before them. And, and especially this Christmas time, don't, don't just be getting in a bunch of religious arguments with people, you know. It never works, you know. You're not about to convince them because you're smarter than they are. All right? Just let God's love shine through you and let your life be a testimony to them. So anyway, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. So the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. So this is what Moses does. He gets up every day, sits down, and 
they stood around him from morning until evening. And when his father-in-law saw that Moses was, what was doing for all the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said, well, because the people come to me to seek God's will, and whenever they have a fight, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, dude, you are a wacko. What are you doing? What you're doing is not good. So basically, Moses' day consisted of he'd get up and he'd sit down and then people would come and whine all day long. And it was his job to work out everybody's fight, work out everybody's thing, and he's dealing with every single detail in people's lives. Okay? He's the pastor. Everybody's got to touch the pastor. So everybody's got to come to him and he's trying to deal with everything. And his father-in-law says, dude, you are going to wear yourself out. What you're doing is not good. Uh, You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen to me now. And And I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's Uh, represented before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws. Teach them how to live and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands and hundreds and fifties and even tens. He basically set up this whole structure. And have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring very difficult cases to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. And Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel, made them leaders of the people, officials over hundreds of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Basically, you go to the guy uh, of, of the ten. And I, we're having a problem. And if you couldn't resolve it, you go to the guy with the, whatever, was the next one, fifties. And that worked at the hundreds. The guy with the thousands, if that couldn't happen, you'd eventually get up to Moses. Okay, they served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they'd bring to Moses, the ones they couldn't solve, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and he returned to his own country. So this is a major thing here. Here, here is where he, he's, he sets Moses, because he sees Moses just wearing himself out and saying, look, you don't have to do this all yourself. If you do this all yourself, you're going to wear yourself out. You need to set other people up so that they can handle and help and minister to the people. It's certainly, uh, as a church, our size continues to grow and get larger and larger and larger. Sometimes people complain because they, you know, I, I can't ever get to you. Well, you can, you know, if your problem's confusing everybody else and they don't know what to do or if it's a major deal. You can always grab me at any time. But we try to, there's other people here to help me. If I did this all myself, I don't think there's enough people to hold up my hands, I for sure would fry out. If I had to deal with everybody's personal thing and everybody's got to touch the pastor. And, and uh, well, we have wonderful men and women here who are anointed by God, who know what they're talking about. They know how to help people. They know how to minister to people. Uh, many of them have more years of ministry than I have. And I mean, they are extremely, extremely capable men and women who are here to help you and to minister to you. That's why we have a staff that we have, because one person can't do it all and it's really kind of based on this model here of you know if, if one guy does it all he'll absolutely fry out but if he will put people in charge so that others can be ministering to them as they go along 
other way. Ideally, you know, you should be ministering to one another. You should be able to come to your friends and, and, and different people and get help and instruction from them. If that doesn't work, then you can make an appointment and go uh, come into the staff and talk to some of them. If that doesn't work, and it happens from time to time, they call me and say, well, you know, I'm referring so-and-so to you because... Uh, Several of us have tried and haven't been able to help. And then and then I jump into the fray. So that's, you know, don't feel like, gee, somehow that's unscriptural or he thinks he's too important. That's not what it's about at all. I don't think very, I don't think like that at all. I don't walk around all hoity-toity. I think most of you know me better than that. It's just a matter of by having some kind of a system where people go at different levels for help, it makes it possible for me to do what I do. That makes sense, right? Y'all understand that? Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's end. Goodbye. <laughs> About three minutes, 25 seconds over. Let's have our ushers come forward and we'll take the offering. Our musicians coming back up and, uh, and then we will let you go. Um, this, this really gets interesting, by the way, as we go into this and we start following the story of these people, what they did, and you will be amazed at... I mean, it just boggles the mind how these people could so experience God on a level you and I in our wildest dreams wish we could experience. But they just would not believe and would whine and complain and criticize to no end. It's truly amazing. And and we'll have fun as we go through this, reading this. Uh, In a little bit, they're going to go to Mount Sinai. That's the Mount of God. That's where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. We're going to read about all that, where all that comes from, and and learn as much as we can on uh, from what they did and how we can learn from that and grow in our own faith. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings and for the sharing of your word tonight. Help us, oh God, to be grateful people, to walk in faith, not to be overwhelmed by our circumstances or to get bitter towards you or start questioning whether or not you care about us say where is God and why has he left me out here all by myself Lord help us to be people of faith help us to stand in faith and to trust you so that your miracles can come into our lives we thank you for this opportunity now to give back into your kingdom bless everyone who helps to support this work we pray in Jesus name Amen